this evening, I'd <clears throat> like to just say, uh, make a few brief points, uh, brief general points about the nodes of the lattice, about the, what we call the elements of the imaginal also. Um, and then um, move on to kind of following on from some of the things we were talking about with regard to self, self-sense and imaginal self, self-becoming imaginal, and, uh, and explore some of the ramifications of uh, what we talked about there uh, with respect to uh, some of the nodes of the lattice, some of the elements of the imaginal. This is just, a, as I said, a few brief general points about the nodes of the lattice, about these, uh, we have 28 elements <clears throat> of the imaginal. First thing is, uh, actually some of these I've, I've said before, um, but uh, they bear repeating. So first thing is to remember what the point of that teaching um, of the elements of the lattice is. Um, it has two main points. One is in terms of um, discernment, clarity about what is or isn't imaginal in our sense, or how, uh, uh, what constitutes an image or, or a sensing the soul becoming more, Im- more fully imaginal, more authentically imaginal in our language. Um, so that's one point, uh, one reason for that teaching one purpose it serves. Uh, in that sense, there's a kind of, uh, yeah, aiding conceptual understanding, but also helping in the navigation, in the in the steering. What what am I trying to get to here? What what am I trying to support? Maybe a better way of putting it. What openings am I trying to encourage or uh, lay the conditions for? Second uh, purpose of intended purpose of those teachings of the elements of the imaginal nodes uh, is um, also that they can be used in practice, so that by noticing a certain element, for example, the the, the sense of time um, or the sense of ontic status, the, the reality status, by actually paying attention um, along the lines of a certain element, that element can be ignited. Uh, we can notice something there, and that noticing and that attention can ignite that element, and and uh, thus the thing, the image, can become more imaginal. But in igniting that element, whether it's the element of eternality and terms of temporality, or whether it's the element of theater, imaginal middle way, or whatever it is, or love, or beauty, um, eros. Um, uh, in, in, in that igniting, it can ignite other nodes. And sometimes it's a matter of, as I said, just paying attention and noticing, oh yeah, I am loved here. I didn't notice it before. It doesn't fall into the kind of usual... Uh, appearance of of what I tend to think love looks like, but there is love there. Let me let me pay attention to that and feel that. It might be quite subtle. It might be uh, a really different manifestation. 
um, in the noticing, it brings it it brings it more uh, alive, more more uh, becomes more prominent. That ignites, and then the other notes ignite. But it's also possible to um, to kind of uh, deliberately ignite uh, a certain note just by deciding to, or by jiggling, wiggling it in a certain way. So, for example, um, the energy body awareness. We can always um, reopen that, spread that um, uh, right awareness uh, in in the space of the body and. Uh, fill that with sensitivity and presence and notice if there's an image of the body, etc. And that uh, one's actually uh, igniting deliberately that node and that that can have an effect. So sometimes just through noticing, sometimes through deliberate tweaking, jiggling, etc. So there's a double, uh, double uh, purpose for that teaching, one is, as I said, conceptual clarity, conceptual differentiation from uh, other experiences or paths that may kind of overlap or be sort of similar. Um, so that the a the conceptual understanding, the understanding of the conceptual framework and logos, but b the navigation, and c that it's actually uh, sorry, and secondly that it's actually helpful in in practice. Uh, either by noticing an element or uh, deliberately doing something there. So uh, just check in yourself if you've been, if you've if the, your understanding or your relationship with that teaching of the elements has only included part of of that uh, those purposes. Either one's forgot that one can actually use it in practice as part of the art of practice, part of the alchemy, and one's thinking more in terms of definition. Or uh, sometimes a person kind of reports, yes, I've had that one, I've had that one, etc., as if they're sort of things to um, collect as opposed to engage um, and work with, etc., Okay, so that's one point. Second point is that, um, I've said this several times already on this course, um, there's, no, there's no real order in which, uh, there's no uniform and regular order in which these nodes or elements uh, ignite. So what that means is, um, in the art of our practice, uh, we can be opportunistic. Which ones uh, can I notice? Which ones may be available to my engagement, to my uh, activity, to my subtle responsiveness, to my um, turning them on, etc. Um, but it might happen in any order. So uh, uh, there's no there's no linear, predictable, formulaic order in which these nodes need to be engaged or noticed or um, played with and in which they tend to ignite. And anything can happen um, in any order, I think. Uh, Another point, uh, again, I've said it before elsewhere, they're all connected. So all these elements are connected. It's hard to start talking about one without it kind of uh, beginning to spill over into talking about another one. Um, or a group of them kind of tend to go together or whatever. So they're all connected. There is overlap. They're concepts with um, soft and elastic edges. They're fuzzy. They're interconnected. The nature of that interconnection, as I've pointed out before, 
is sometimes a kind of one of, uh, let's say, uh, a <coughs> tension of um, <coughs> not paradox so much as opposition. They're pulling in different directions. Um, so, for example, the autonomy um, of an image may be um, pulling in a different direction than the, than the fact of it being created, uh, but that we're engaged in cr- creating, uh, partly. Um, uh, so though sometimes there's a kind of op- opposition, but they pull in different directions. Um, and that's part of the tension or yeah, maybe paradox or mystery of the uh, imaginal and of sensing the soul. And sometimes um, two notes kind of overlap or seem to imply each other uh, so that they are close in meaning or overlapping in meaning. Um, so divin- dimensionality and unfathomability, for instance, not exactly the same, but they uh, kind of um, uh, relate very much. Um, eros and beauty. Uh, we could we could analyse them all and l- look at if we wanted to the, the kinds of relationships between the nodes. But there's a general point there. I want to take this opportunity now um, that being recorded to um, to uh, say uh, there's a couple of corrections I would like to make or uh, revisions, if you like, to the list of um, the elements. So one has to do with um, uh, I can't remember. I don't know if they ha- even have numbers, but um, uh, the not not reduced to one meaning, uh, I would like to, um, which it doesn't only mean X or Y, um, I would like to add not reduced to one meaning or or one causal explanation. So we've touched on this before, but if I tend to think, oh, this image is here because A, or because B, or because, for instance, it's representing uh, my personal power, or it's representing my compassion, or it's representing um, some wound that I um, uh, had from childhood or, or whatever. That may be part of, included in an understanding of um, the, the causal explanation of why this image is arising. But if we reduce it to just just that causal explanation, whatever that causal explanation is, then we're kind of um, limiting the image, limiting the possibilities of the image, and uh, if you like, tr- uh, amputating parts of the image, it will lose some of its life, depth, breadth, uh, resonance, etc., and uh, power. So that's um, one connection. So that uh, element we can now say is not reduced to one. Uh, only one meaning or only one causal explanation. Uh, The second little correction has to do with tunas, which we may, uh, I'm not sure if I've said this before, we could expand that one to say tunas, differentiation or retaining particularities. Because sometimes I said the image arises here, in my body, 
uh, I become, my body and my sense of self become the image, like the tree or whatever it is uh, that I shared as an example briefly in one of these talks. Um, there doesn't seem to be. I, it might. It might then be that my sense of self as meditator splits out from it as image. I mean, that will always be there to a subtle, uh, to a subtle sense because awareness is always in a dualistic relationship with its object. But even more significant than that is the fact that it retains particularities. There's not. Uh, there's a particular tree with particular uh, qualities. This tree particular colours, particular shape, particular geometry, particular uh, uh, feel and, and aesthetic presentation, etc. So retaining particularities also means, as part of this node, two-ness differentiation, retaining particularities also means <coughs> it, we, it's not uh, moving towards dissolution, uh, uh, melting, uh, oneness, etc. Um, a kind of... Uh, loss of features, loss of form, loss of fading, uh, loss, uh, fading and loss of features and form. That is uh, certainly part of soul making in the larger sense, in terms of the the beautiful uh, directions that the soul and the consciousness can experience and explore. But in terms of imaginal work, mostly. Um, we say it retains particularities, differentiation, and sometimes the sense of two-ness. Okay, so those were the brief general points about the nodes, about the elements. Uh, as I said, I want to um, pick up the thread, some of the threads of what we were talking about in relation to self-sense and self as image and self-becoming image. And uh, just... Um, unfold or touch on some of the ramifications there with respect to some of the other nodes. Um, so implicit in, uh, or, or kind of even obvious in a lot of what we were talking about in the talk about self and angel out ahead and daemons, etc., um, is a sense of dimensionality. And... Um, you know, it's interesting hearing back from people which nodes, which elements kind of make sense to them and which make sense much less. Um, sometimes, uh, well, someone reported to me, I don't really understand this dimensionality node. Um, actually, a couple of people reported that. So, um, it may be that a better word is depth. The other day someone was saying dimensionality. And when I heard, hear that word dimensionality, I think of sort of an x-axis, a y-axis, and a z-axis, or length, breadth, and width, as if there's some kind of um, rectangle there, and I'm looking in there at right angles to each other, and my mind goes there when, when I hear that word, um, like dimensions. Um, so maybe a better word is depth, in the sense that uh, the image or the sense of this object has uh, uh, a depth dimension. It has it has a sense of moreness to it, of beyonds, of other levels of being, other planes of existence in it, other mysteries within it that are um, uh, e- either directly um, sensible or kind of um, intuitively sensed, dimly, vaguely sensed. So that might be a better word. Someone else was saying they also uh, 
wasn't quite sure what what that meant um, the dimensionality and um, it, they found it helpful when I uh, explained one way you can understand it um, uh, or is the idea or uh, the image of, for example, a human being or an action as being the kind of projection or emanation or refraction uh, or, or, of the image of an angel um, uh, or projection or emanation of, of an angel so that this image is um, is a refraction of, of an angel or that this um, human being that I'm seeing now is is an emanation, a projection, a refraction of an angel, the embodiment of an angel who exists at, at another level, so to speak, and with another dimension. Um, and within that, and I'll come back to this, uh, to realize that the human, uh, or the self, or the action, or the duty that's involved um, all of that can never be a perfect or exact replica of of the angel, if we use those words. So that's why I use the word refraction, which means when light hits water, it's slightly bent a certain way. It's the same ray of light, but it's slightly, it's given a, a kind of spin by the water. So the angel is given particular spins uh, by the human being, for instance, or the uh, image, it's not um, it's not a perfect 100% mirroring. And that's an important point. We'll come back to in other other contexts and to make other points uh, in terms of implications for our life and our sense of what we value and what we're aspiring to. So an image can, uh, so a human being, we can have a sense of a human being as refracting um, an angel, as a refraction, a projection, an emanation of an angel. And that that whole idea, just because the angel exists at another dimension, so to speak, that whole idea gives a sense, or as an example, a sense of dimensionality, uh, or we could say depth. Um, an image, uh, intrapsychic image, um, also can be the image of such an angel. Um, and then the dimensionality is there. Uh, the moreness is implicit in the whole space between, kind of between the image and the angel. So this image maybe is not the angel, it's, it's the refraction of the angel, it's an emanation of the angel. Uh, the moreness and the dimensionality is also in the in the kind of bottomlessness or unfathomability of the angel, and that's where the image gets its unfathomability from. It's connected to the unfathomability of the angel. Um, and as we mentioned, a person, for example, can be the projection, the emanation, the refraction of many angels. Uh, Contrary to some of the uh, saying, Corbin, Henri Corbin, um, sometimes it's not really his teaching. Or it's hard to say when when he writes, is it is it his teaching or is it 
his teaching sort of, again, a refraction or spins his interpretation of the teachings of these different Islamic mystics and scholars through the ages. Um, but some of what he writes makes it sound like there's one angel for each human being. And uh, we're saying, yes, it might be one, it might be, might be many more than one with all the kind of uh, added richness and added complexity and added sometimes uh, difficulty that that brings. But anyway, I think uh, Corbin was very prolific and, as I said, was probably reporting on different traditions and teachings. So sometimes it might be this and sometimes it might be that. It's not important for our purposes. Um, a, a person, we would say, can be the projection of many angels. So that might be for some people, just that idea might begin to give uh, a, a kind of, some kind of entrance into the, the, the node of dimensionality or some sense of a possibility of beginning to understand that. And of course it can open up um, in different ways uh, other than that and more than that. But this is absolutely crucial, and for many reasons, the sense of dimensionality so much rests on this. Um, And again, we'll come back to it, in in hopefully, if I get a chance to do those talks on ethics, we'll come back to it. But if we, why is it it important? Um, You know, if things are just flat, if things are all the same, in terms of uh, the level of their being, so to speak, uh, it, well, it doesn't feel very soulful, uh, for one thing. It doesn't feel very rich and very deep, of course, because the depth or dimensionality is not there. But it also doesn't enable us in our life to have um, an anchor that's deep. So an, an anchor for our being when things are difficult or confusing, when we've lost our bearings, etc. So we're like a ship at sea, um, if the anchor that it puts down does not reach uh, and uh, have, find traction in and connect with something of another substance other than water, that ship just drifts. And it's the same for us as human beings without a sense of something of another uh, of another level uh, of another dimension um, in all kinds of ways existentially psychologically spiritually soulfully uh, we drift we lose our bearings we lose our sense of meaningfulness orientation um, steadiness courage all, all kinds of qualities so sometimes, you know, um, some uh, ways of relating to the Dharma want to put so much, uh, want to kind of pin so much hope on mindfulness and the practice of mindfulness. And there is a kind of anchoring as they come back to the breath or mindfulness as awareness is, is kind of, um, you know, different than than its objects, etc., like that. But mindfulness is not really an anchor at another level. It doesn't have that, um, uh, so much of a sense of dimensionality. Even if awareness is larger than uh, objects and experiences, mindfulness is impermanent. It comes and goes. It exists in time. Uh, 
an image or a sensing with soul has this implicit dimensionality as we're teaching that we can get a sense of we can we can as i said begin to notice it begin to feel it begin to feel its import and how that sense of dimensionality actually touches the being and and um that's if you like the dimensionality there is something of another level so when we need an anchor when we're lost when we're confused when we're agitated when we're unsure morally when we're um, in some kind of crisis, etc., when the winds blow, when the storm waters are surging and uh, swelling, turbulent around our ship, then uh, we need some kind of sense of something of another dimension. Uh, so it's curious because the normal... Um, Contemporary, the dominant contemporary way of understanding things is is to uh, try and find an anchor in some kind of solidity, some kind of obvious insurance or investment in money or house or this or that, a relationship, etc. Um, and of course, that that does provide an anchor to a certain extent, and correspondingly. The dominant contemporary uh, mindset and worldview would dismiss images and sensing the souls as being way too insubstantial, unrealistic, uh, not really there um, to provide any kind of anchor. But actually, because they have this, there is this sense of dimensionality, and the, that sense uh, touches the soul, it touches the heart of the soul, uh, it provides a better anchor. Because it's a different, it's a different level. It's a different substance. It's not. It's not just water. Uh, it's um, it, it's it's something of a different uh, material, if you like, in a different level of being. Of course, there are other. There are many kind of anchors of a different level of being. Uh, so, the um, experience, for example, of uh, cosmic or universal um, love. Uh, not so much my love, my meta, my self-love, but the the sense of the universe and the cosmos um, being made out of love, being um, shot through uh, with love, love being uh, woven into the fabric of the cosmos. Um, that's a, a perception of a different dimension of being than the usual habitual flatland view. Similarly, the, the, the sense, the meditative sense or opening to uh, a cosmic or universal awareness, not just mindfulness, but a, a universal cosmic awareness, um, again, that, that holds everything or that um, things really are in the depths of their being, they are this awareness, this cosmic awareness. Um, that too would would uh, the, both those examples, the awareness and the love, when they when you have the cosmic sense of them in that sense, there's a dimensionality. And as I've said many times in explaining things in these talks, there's usually for people some kind of sense of divinity with them. A practitioner opening in those kinds of ways starts to use the language of divinity very often, even if they've never felt comfortable with it before. So the dimensionality and divinity are there in those experiences. But neither of them, neither the cosmic awareness nor the cosmic love, include the personal. 
the necessity of my particularities and my unique personhood. So there's something about an anchor, uh, about the kind of anchoring that images uh, offer us, present to us, give us, that is both a, a, a powerful anchor because it has another dimension, another level of being if you like, another kind of substance to it. Um, but also, it's an anchor that uh, includes the necessity of my my unique personhood. It speaks to me uniquely. It's relevant to me. It includes my particularities and is resonant with and attuned to and tailored to my particularities. But this this principle of dimensionality and anchoring is very, very important. Um, it makes such a difference in in life, or it can make such a difference, if the sensibility is allowed to open to it, if it doesn't um, uh, dismiss it out of hand, close uh, the eyes and the senses to to that possible sense, etc. If the sensibility is trained, it's right there. As I said, these elements of the imaginal, they're really things to notice. It's almost like you just hang out and imagine you start to notice, oh yeah, there is that sense, oh yeah. Um, And these words that we're putting out for the elements, they're just sort of best efforts at kind of uh, pinpointing or naming these aspects of the imaginal that are there waiting to be kind of more clearly discerned and noticed. <clears throat> so, um, the importance of this uh, of this dimensionality was practicing in a dyad and uh, a little while ago and um, as I mentioned in the beginning talk, I hope that I can say a little bit about dyad practice. And dyad practice has all kinds of levels. So, so far, in I think in the recording te- recorded teachings, we've just put out very basic dyad practice um, or triad practice. Um, but it, it's pe- people have really loved it and gone for it. And we've put out this very basic sort of almost exercise-like um, aware of the energy body, aware of the emotions, speaking that and receiving it, then sharing an image, maybe seeing the other as angel, etc. Um, So hopefully we'll return to diet practice and add a bit. And people have asked me, and I think I've said in response, you know, there's other levels where there can be, the diet itself can be um, full of eros. And and so uh, it's implicit in seeing another as an angel, in fact, but oh, I'm being seen as an angel. Um, but the, the other person can become image for me right now, and I can become image for them right now in the present moment. And that's what we're practicing with, and that's what we're engaging together and sharing together and talking about together and, and kind of um, opening to, to together. And sometimes that eros can be... Uh, non-sexual, and sometimes it can be sexual. And I, we have we've expressed caution about doing that kind of practice, just because of, in some cases or some situations, how much eros can arise, and sometimes how much sexual eros can arise. 
and and the necessity to like be a little bit careful. It's like, okay, what are the conditions of my life? Do I have, uh, you know, whatever it is, m- monogamous obligations here? That this there's so much eros in this dyad now that, that I'm a little bit in danger of um, acting out in a certain way, and which will also potentially break the eros in the dyad anyway. Um, uh, all, all kinds of issues that can I even handle that energy. So we've been deliberately holding back um, about those kinds of teachings, um, or that level of teachings of diet practice. But it's there, and maybe at some point we'll um, we'll release more teachings about that. We'll see. Anyway, that was a long prelude and caution to say that I was practicing diet uh, in, in a diet with someone. We were looking at each other. And um, there was a lot of Eros there. It was, uh, say, there was romantic Eros, if you like, um, in, 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 in the imaginal, the imaginal, the erotic imaginal. And the image of us as, um, I don't know the words, even mystical, uh, a mystical husband and wife, uh, echoing, mirroring, the emanation of, the refraction of a kind of cosmic uh, husband and wife there. So very, very beautiful, and the sense of um, all, all the elements were alive as it became fully imaginal. Um, but what struck me uh, at, at this point, um, sometime in the last months, I don't know, um, was the sense of the sense of participation, as I said, and there was a sense of this experience now, and this image now, uh, uh, or this sensing with soul now. So I, would, uh, my sense of her, my sense of us, um, uh, was retained. You know, it was clear the forms were retained, but there was a sense of these being echoes, um, refractions of. Uh, a, a, a higher level, if you like, an angelic level, a cosmic level, whatever language you want to use. And of course, in that, then this level, this human level, and the sense of it in, in opening uh, to that kind of sensing the soul is, is that we are participating, participating in, uh, in the image which has higher roots, uh, roots in divinity. So the element of participation was very strong, and grace and eternality, this uh, cosmic husband and wife and their eros and their love and their bond, um, always already happening. And the human uh, experience can open to that, enter into that, and participate in it. This this element of participation, I think, one of the deepest, knows most mysterious um, of the of the elements of the imaginal. But with that sense of participation and grace and the eternality was was a real sense of privilege um, that really touched my soul, and um, in a way I, I felt that very often. But it felt more clear to me, felt clearer to me, and per, per, partly perhaps because of my health situation, my um, probably dying soon, that all three of those knows, the participation, the grace, and the eternality, but particularly the participation and the privilege of participating. Privilege of participating in this uh, cosmic image. 
um, of of somehow being part of that, uh, uh, participating in a in a theophany, in a face of divinity, in 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 something, in an image that has roots in divinity, um, and that privilege uh, gave me really uh, I could feel it um, its impact on the sense of dying and uh, on this on on the relationship to death so that you know when there's that kind of sense of privilege even if it only lasts a few minutes or seconds even um something is touched so deeply and so one one really recognizes i i've drunk from from a treasure here i've drunk from uh, uh a deep and infinite well and somehow I am part of that. I've recognized that I am part of that. It changes the sense of one's being. Um, so this enormous sense of privilege and recognizing, changing the sense, the relationship with death, recognizing, you know, a long life. I, I, I still feel quite young. <laughs> if I die soon, I'm dying young. But, um, uh, but recognizing with this... Uh, really profound sense of privilege touched my heart and soul so deeply. A long life is not so important. A long life without that, without that sense of privilege and participation and how that touches the being and what it says about one's being and about one's existence, even if one struggles to articulate that. A life without all that is not so great. Um, A short life with uh, that includes times of touching or opening to those kinds of perceptions, those kinds of elements and senses, um, is worthwhile, is very okay. I'm reminded of the Buddha, you know, said just a, a moment, better one moment than of knowing the unfabricated than a hundred years of life without knowing the unfabricated. It's akin to that. Um, so it really relativized the whole relationship with death in, 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 at that time. It's not just that the um, eternality element was turned on uh, and therefore there's a different relationship with death because death obviously is an ending in time and where there's a sense of eternality it sort of transcends that or relativizes it. But so this, this sense of dimensionality participating in other dimensions and the privilege of all that, the grace of all that, um, so uh, potentially uh, profound and impactful in, in our relationship to all the vicissitudes of our existence, including including dying. Now that's an example um, from, uh, from dyad practice, but... Uh, it might be all images and all sensing with souls actually have that same kind of uh, opportunity in them to really, um, in the sense of dimensionality, in the sense of participation, in the sense of grace and eternality, etc., um, there is this sense of privilege and it can really, uh, there's potentially a sense of privilege which can be um, immensely liberating, beautiful, fulfilling um, meaningful, etc. That was an example from a diet practice, but but maybe any image, any any sensing the soul, 
It may be extra powerful when it's in relation to an, uh, an actual physical human other. Because then there is this kind of transubstantiation or filling out, dimensionalizing of this level of existence and, and, and our humanity. Uh, it goes right to the core of our humanity. But I think it's there as a possibility and a potential opening, glimpse, taste in any um, sensing with soul. <clears throat> so you can hear that um, dimensionality is implicit um, and sometimes we make it explicit in some of what we were talking about with regard to self um, the other night. Uh, but let's follow on and, and touch on a, a couple of the other nodes. Um, humility. Uh, humility as we are using the that word, a um, couple of things, like I've said before, um, each of these nodes will will expand um, in time as we experience it, as we fill it out, as the soul-making dynamic does its work and the dough gets kneaded and the fermentation happens and the richness and the complexifying and the deepening. Each node itself will also grow. Our sense, our understanding, our range of experience um, each, each of the elements themselves will also gain dimensionality and meaning. In our uh, paradigm, when we use the word humility, it's in relationship. It's, uh, humility is in the face of. It's humility before, um, um, uh, in other words, in, in, as I said, in, in relationship with mystery and love and dimensionality and unfathomability and divinity. So some more commonly in secular, you know, in the dominant secular culture, humility just means um, a person doesn't think too much of himself or, or maybe just daunted by something that they feel incapable of um, addressing or carrying out or understanding or, or whatever it is. It's a relative size thing, but it, re- it retains just a flatland dimensionality. Those talking and listening to someone, talking with and listening to someone, um, a little while ago, talking about um, climate crisis and, and things like that. And it struck me a little while later, um, as I was thinking about the soul-making teachings, that although she had a sense of, um, I don't understand the complexity of this problem, which is you know, a pretty uh, appropriate um, response. It's so complex psychologically, economically, socially, politically, uh, probably even complex in terms of the uh, Earth's um, geo, you know, weather systems and, and all that. Um, or, I, you know, what to do? What do we do about climate change? You know, what can we possibly do? And I'm just one person. It's such a huge issue. Or we're just such a small minority who seem to really want to engage and do something about it. And so there's a kind of, we could call it humility there. But what was missing was, in the whole relationship, was that there was, there was not the mystery. There was not the unfathomability. There was not the dimensionality and the divinity there. So, um, I'm not even sure I would I would use the word humility um, in in that case, um, but that too, you know, I felt like potentially there was whole other levels of 
um, and possibilities and, and um, breadth to her whole relationship with the climate crisis that, that might be able to be opened if, if some of these other more imaginal elements can be opened and particularly the sense of dimensionality, divinity, etc., which then would allow a different sense of humility in relationship to it. So, uh, self, dimensionality, humility, these are all really, really uh, key um, key key elements and uh, very much you can see how they kind of, as I said, they're connected. They, they have implications for each other. They weave into each other. When we're... Uh, talking about humility and you know, it's again it gets a certain spin sometimes in our contemporary uh, secular culture in the dominant culture at least and um, it can be a kind of self-denigration or self-effacement or all that kind of thing so again I hope this is obvious anyway but the way we're using it is um, much more uh, to do with Oh, much more includes a sense of healthy self-esteem. It's not in any way in opposition to that. So that um, one can feel this kind of deep humility, a beautiful, rich, soft humility that, as I said, is a humility in relationship to mystery, to love, to unfathomability, to dimensionality and divinity. And none of that um, is has any implications or any... Um, any offshoot into self-depreciation, self-denigration, self-worthlessness, and and all that kind of stuff uh, at all. So that uh, we can even be proud, in the good sense, um, of our being and, and, and our direction and what we've done and and how we are and what we're oriented towards and uh, all of that. At the same time as we're humble, they're not in any way contradictory. Uh, quote Nikolai Hartmann, um, who I'll come back to several times, a German philosopher of the first half of the 20th century for the most part, um, <clears throat> It would be a mistake to suppose that uh, genuine pride, um, which he points out is uh, f- for Aristotle in the ancient Greek teachings was Hellenistic teachings was part of what it was part of the makeup of a great soul would would actually have a healthy pride. Um, there's nothing in that that excludes uh, a genuine humility. Um, the person who is justified in being proud will always, <clears throat> if they see themselves clearly, have something before which they humble themselves. But the humble person must always have something in himself which he prizes, if it's going to be a healthy humility and a genuine um, virtue. <clears throat> I might have pointed this out before, but again, it's worth saying again, because we're talking about self and self-sense and the image of self, etc. <clears throat> um, so again, 
words like humility and even grace, etc., they're often uh, loaded words for us in this culture, and they can mean different things or um, dependent on our past conditioning and our past associations with such words. They can be uh, loaded problematically sometimes in, in different ways. But with regard to sensing the soul and imaginal practice, um, those words and those attitudes, like humility, etc., um, uh, the attitudes to which, uh, the, the, the poise, let's say, an attitude to which those words refer, um, they, they, they can't be too self-weighted um, in the sense um, too focused on self and certainly not on sin. So that's one of the associations, the unfortunate associations uh, or spins that those kinds of words, <coughs> humility and grace, um, have been given through a kind of, I would say, um, narrowing of Christian teachings over, I don't know, over the millennia. Um, so that sometimes when people think of those words, they associate them with a sense of uh, sin, worthlessness, feeling bad, um, and it's very selfy. And the self uh, that, that has them is a kind of very solid, heavy self. Um, there's, it's contracted, dense, and there's a kind of tight fabrication of self there. Um, in our usage of those words, it's almost like it's it's more fertile if the self-sense that feels humble is actually much lighter. Um, perhaps it's a certain region of the spectrum of self-fabrication. So it's not the self at that point feeling the, the kind of humility that will be fertile as an element of the imaginal. Um, the self that's fabricated at that point won't be a, a heavy, solid, weighty, contracted self that's a kind of little bit self-obsessed. There's a certain region where there's a lighter self-fabrication. Again, that ties in with a node of slightly less fabricated. Um, and in that region, the, self, the self-sense can still feel humility. So again, there's, there's a self-sense, there's form, but it's light, it's malleable, it's liquid. And in that region of um, lighter self-fabrication, there can still be a very poignant and moving and beautiful soft softening humility um, that is fertile in terms of the whole generation and, and reception of images. Outside of that range, um, the, there may not be that fertility. The imaginal perception won't work. The sensing of soul will be much less possible. So again, we talk about self as possible refraction of um, angel etc. We talk about dimensionality, divinity, we talk about humility, but all of this is actually uh, uh, needs to rest on or rest in a certain spectrum of self-fabrication that's not too heavy, too dense, too tightly fabricated. Again though, the order, you know, so we don't know it's not necessarily that I have to lighten the self, I mean it might be I lighten the self-fabrication and then all kinds of possibilities open up imaginally and with the elements of the imaginal. Or it might be they open up and automatically in that there's an ignition of the slightly less fabricated node and and the self-sense lightens. So it's not necessarily linear, but wrapped up 
or kind of implicit in our understanding of humility is 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 generally speaking uh, a less slightly less fabricated sense of self. <clears throat> I can't remember if I mentioned the other day, um, uh, the other evening, um, the possibility of actually uh, starting with humility, uh, starting even. With the with the sort of light intention uh, to be open and receptive to images, should they uh, come, should they be born, should they be given, but actually starting with humility. There's no image there yet, <clears throat> but still, if again, if the um, if the self is not too solid, not too densely and tightly fabricated, and um, uh, if if my sense of other or object is um, is not yet a, a formed image or a clear image. It can still be uh, within that sense of a less solid self. There can be an, be with that sense of a less solid self. There can be um, a sense of other beloved other that may be very vague. Um, some sense of the more than me uh, that's unfathomable that has mystery and dimensionality. That may be it. There's just some vague sense of an other that's more than me, that's unfathomably deep, uh, that's pregnant with mystery and and dimensionality. And just that, again, that stance, that poise, that openness, um, with the self less rarefied, with uh, a vague sense of other, but that's already pregnant with those more mystical um, and soulful qualities, and a relationship or a, or a poise of humility um, from the self in relation to that, in the face of that, before that. Um, that may be, in, in a way then, yeah, you're, you're igniting, if you, to use the language, you're igniting the element of humility. And out of that um, uh, beautiful crucible, um, an image may arise. And even if it doesn't arise, just to hang out in that space with the self... Um, not so solidified, just with a vague sense, a mystical sense of of um, the other that's more than me, that's unfathomable, etc. That's a really beautiful place to hang out. So I don't have to demand, uh, I want an image and I want a clear visual image, etc. I may come, may not come, but just to be in that space is doing something to the soul. It's soul-making. And we could say it's already imaginal just by virtue of those elements being alive in the vague sense of other. There's no clearly sensible <coughs> image or delineated or you know discernible, but in in that vague sense, we could say that's already image. Yeah, but uh, whether we call it imaginal or not, it it can be in terms of the soul and what it's stretching and opening and tending uh, in, and nourishing in the soul and the soil, uh, the, the way it's um, enriching and uh, caring for the soil, changing the soil of the soul, is, go- is going to be very beautiful and soul-making and, and beneficial. Again, if we t- just linger on this this need for the self to be uh, not fabricated as much or in the ways that it usually is. 
um, in relation to humility and the more than me uh, and divinity, etc. Um, <clears throat> so I touched on one level of prayer being, uh, I think it's the right word, I should really look it up in the dictionary, but prayer is supplication. I'm using that word to mean um, uh, prayer is some kind of ask or request. So people pray, you know, humanity has done this forever, I pray to this God or that God or <clears throat> um, for this or that, for the rains to come, for protection, for whatever it is, for healing. <clears throat> so um, it's interesting, sometimes, and I think I pointed this out maybe in the Eros Unfettered talks, I can't remember when, but um, sometimes that very, that very stance of asking for something um, it's me, this self, asking another, in this case God or the Buddha nature or the, some divinity or angel or whatever, asking for, uh, wanting, hoping for, desiring something, maybe in my case might be desiring healing or, or whatever. <clears throat> but the desire itself is a, can be, can be, not always, but can be a slightly problematic element. Because uh, because of the te- because of dependent arising, we know that desire um, tends to fabricate, um, and it can fabricate more sense of self. It can so that the self sense that's asking can actually feel um, start starts off already as feeling separate. I want I a separate self want something from this separate other or hope for something, or whatever, or asking for something. Um, and because of the desire implicit, and the sense of the separation, and, and the desire, the self-sense actually becomes, through the, through the action of prayer, uh, actually becomes more separate from the divinity. You understand? Because it's fabricated more, and partly what's fabricated in the sense of self is a se- se- sense of separateness. One of the possibilities in that kind of situation, if you're engaged in that kind of practice, like, you know, the beauty of prayer, and, and there's so many possibilities when we talk about prayer, but um, it, one possibility, if that, if that kind of thing, is, if we've noticed that kind of thing happening, is actually to introduce a subtle idea, very, very, uh, again, very delicately introduced, uh, a logos, um, that my desire, my wanting, my asking, or let's say my desire, is actually is actually part of the divine desire. So that my wanting, whatever it is, healing or this or that, um, that's not just mine. I'm not. I'm already introducing a conception of it as part of the divine desire. Again, I'm participating in the divine desire. Um, this desire of mine is is somehow participating in the in the divine desire in a divine desire in in introducing that logos again where um, uh, not exacerbating the sense of self where changing the relationship and the conception with desire and and where igniting the element of participation among among other aspects, and then and then the whole sense of prayer can be uh, a real, uh, much more soulful experience, and can open up in different sensings with soul, etc. The prayer itself, and of course that can spread to what's around you, um, or your sense of yourself, or all of that. Um, so less separation. 
because we're relating to the desire in a different way, instead of exacerbating the sense of separation and solidity of self, um, which which can kind of frustrate or block the sense of prayer, actually, or block block its deeper possibilities, uh, deeper soul possibilities, let's say, in the, in the soul sense of the prayer. Um, less separation when, when, when you introduce that kind of logos, that kind of subtle idea, and, and, and you introduce it subtly. So again, these things are not to be clanked around with or, or uh, kind of rammed in there or, or shouted in the mind, etc. Um, really, there's really quite a, a, a delicate touch that's needed, um, when, especially in the realm of conception and, and logos, when we're working with that in the soul-making. But because the sensing with soul then gets ignited more, then, then there's just much greater beauty Beauty in the sense of prayer, beauty in the sense of self, beauty in whatever's around you, beauty in the sense of the the divinity or the Buddha nature to whom you are (coughs) addressing the prayer, with whom you are in relationship, etc. But again, you can you can hear in all this 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 dance that I was uh, mentioning the other day. This dance of sort of how much reification, how much fabrication to the sense of self, and and we can play with it at different times. If it gets too solid, uh, too tight, too real, too um, <clears throat> dense, uh, too contracted, too fabricated, the sense of self, it will it will cut off the possibilities. If it gets too unfabricated, it will also cut off certain possibilities. <clears throat> so if we want the soulfulness of prayer, for instance, in the sense of supplication, um, we need to dance in that um, middle ground with form and the liquidity. If we want the angelic dimension, the sense of refraction, projection, emanation from angels, the sense of participating in that, again, we need to dance in this territory where there's form and emptiness together Um, let's see related uh, again implicit in some of the ideas that we were putting out the other night about self and its relationship with angel the angel out ahead uh Wrapped up in that, again, sometimes more implicitly, sometimes obviously and explicitly, um, is also uh, duty and um, necessity or rightness. So um, someone was sharing with me um, an image, and the image was of a hysterically grieving woman. Uh, it's a very powerful image, obviously, with a lot of energy in it, with the hysteria, etc. <clears throat> but we were talking about it, and uh, I think it was obvious to her, even before I talked, I can't remember, or we drew it out in the conversation. But here's this hysterically grieving woman, and it it does not feel right to imagine bringing her a cup of tea, uh, or a blanket, or calming her down, or giving her a Valium, or, or whatever. Um, in some modes of working with the imagination in psychotherapy or perhaps other spiritual paradigms, I don't know, um, there is that sense of wanting to kind of um, <clears throat> rectify and normalize the image along the lines of the normal conceptions and assumptions and models that the n- normal level of mind has. But... <clears throat> 
it uh, absolutely again it, you just have to hang out with with the imaginal to get the to kind of don't buy into that immediate sense oh this is a pathological image um, there's something wrong here if there's something wrong with her in that image it must mean there's something wrong with me etc <clears throat> those kinds of immediate often pre-programmed um, reactions and assessments of the mind just just let let that be and you get another sense uh, that, that maybe <clears throat> less obvious at first but then comes more to the fore as you get used to it no there's something right about about this and to step in and fix her uh, you really recognize that f- that feels wrong um, so there's a rightness to the image and Sometimes with the rightness to the image, it it's connected with our sense of duty. <clears throat> so duty, again, we touched on it in the talks about self um, and angel. It, it, the angels want something from us. Uh, and, and there's a whole range of what they might want and how that might, what that might imply for our lives, of course. But the rightness of the image has something to do, is connected with the duty, often, often. Um, what are the duty uh, again uh, because again implicit in or explicit in some of those ideas about self and its relationship to angel or daemon is, is a sense of duty um, <clears throat> the particularities of an image which seem or, or feel important or the ones that feel soul making um, again, they they often harbor, sometimes hide, um, but or sometimes in, indicate more obviously the, the sense of duty. So uh, there was an image that um, a yogi shared with me of um, a woman in the process of giving birth, of birthing, um, on a, on a completely dried up, devastated landscape, a sort of. Um, almost apocalyptically barren uh, landscape, and she was uh, lying there um, giving giving birth, um, birthing. And we were talking about this image, talking together about this image, and um, I was asking her, um, is there, is, is there, there's a two-ness there, is it between, uh, well, perhaps the, 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 she was asking me about the tunes. I can't remember how it came up, but anyway, is the tunus between uh, you and her, as it often is, the tunus there. Uh, there's the images other, and there's a sense of self and the tunus. Or is it between you and the landscape, or her and the landscape? Or, um, or as we mentioned as one possibility the other night, can you see her as... The, the woman, so that the self and the image separate? Can you actually introduce that? Or is it the uh, woman and the baby or the child inside her? Is that the tunus? Is the, is the tunus there? Um, and uh, the, the person's answer was, was um, very, very immediate, very quick. No, it's the woman and the birthing itself. That's the, that, there's the, the sense of the tunus. There's two in, in that relationship. That was a significant tunus. The woman and the birthing. Um, and when she said that, it immediately gave me the sense that the woman knows that as her duty. So the wrapped up in the sense of 
what felt like to, to this practitioner, what felt like that's the significant dyadic relationship there, the woman and the birthing itself. And that immediately gave me the sense that th- this woman in the image knows uh, that birthing is her duty because of the, the desolate, destroyed land. And, and, and it's her duty with all the dukkha it demands. She goes through, puts up with, meets, and includes. And so gently pointing that out to the practitioner, and she um, recognized uh, the kind of um, soul relevance and soul truth in that, and it and was very, very touching for us both. In this case, from from that sense of duty, then it it might be uh, that the sense of dimensionality and divinity opens up from the sense of duty. Can be. So, as I said, all these elements are are connected. If we um, actually just just linger a little bit on this question of duty, I I started to wonder: Does each imaginal figure? Um, herself, itself, himself, whatever, have a, a, a duty as it, it's aware of. So we have talked so much so far about the duty being our duty in relationship to the imaginal figure, our duty given, if you like, by the angel, refracted better um, into our life um, from the angel <clears throat> through our participation, through our interpretation, through our choices, because we retain autonomy. But I started to wonder, does each imaginal figure um, themselves have a duty that it is aware of? which is, And that duty of the imaginal figure is then refracted into a corresponding duty for the soul-making practitioner. And if that's the case, is it also that um, it's only more obvious with images that express um, in some ways a, a pathology or a dukkha? Um, so those solitary wanderers that I've shared and other people have shared similar kind of images of solitary wanderers. There's dukkha there, but they seem to have a duty to keep wandering and to, and to be solitary to, to to some extent or to a large extent. Or the images that I used to share a lot of this sort of eternal soldier. Again, there's dukkha there. Um, the burden of the battle, the difficulty, the relentlessness, the fatigue, the... Um, danger, Um, or the hysterically grieving woman, or this woman giving uh, birth in a wrecked landscape. I don't know. Um, Perhaps every imaginal figure's duty is to be itself fully, um, and somehow express that. So, I'm just wondering about these things, I don't know. Um, And if we're talking about nodes and, and this sort of thing around duty and, and different aspects, um, someone asked, is is uh, is necessity a node? I can't remember, or, or I was wondering, I don't, maybe I was just wondering, I don't remember if someone else asked or if I was wondering. Um, in other words, that this image feels, it has to be this image, it's necessary. Um, I don't know the answer. Is that a twenty-ninth element um, of our of our uh, lattice? I'm not sure. Perhaps um, if it were, it would be paired. Uh, we talk about the relationship between different elements. It would be paired in kind of um, 
in opposition to the self's autonomy and the, and the create aspect of the create discover. So it's necessary. It has to be this kind of is a, a slight paradoxical relationship, slightly paradoxical relationship with the sense of um, uh, why well, I'm creating it or acknowledgement of creation. I don't know the answer. We could perhaps include something like necessity as a 29th node, or it might already be kind of woven up implicitly in the node of um, soul-making, that an image is uh, is soul-making. And for soul-making, it has to have those resonances that are particular and, as I said, attuned, tailored to this particular soul and what's meaningful, um, uh, what's right on the money. Uh, and, and with this intelligent sort of addressing and speaking to um, my situation, my particular soul, my makeup. So perhaps necessity is, could be conceived of as part of, of the uh, node of, of soul making and, and soul making resonances. Um, while we're on the subject, someone was asking. Um, Recognition, which again may be related to this necessity, it's like is recognition um, possibly an element? Um, you know, sometimes, for instance, in that uh, image I shared of the the claim of the of the of the god of music on me, there's a kind of recognition. I recognise something um, that makes sense of uh, you know an aspect or, or strands of my my life and my struggles, my aspirations, my inspirations, etc. Um, but again, recognition will then be related to infinite mirroring, to meaningfulness, to also to humility, and um, perhaps also values, uh, in a way, perhaps. Uh, so I don't know about that. I'm not sure it's necessary to include another one it seems to me implicit in the infinite mirroring and, and meaningfulness etc um, vulnerability was another one we suggested I think I suggested it the other day or again someone else might have suggested it might be an element yeah it could be we, we talked about it the other day anyway uh, or significance was another one someone uh Again, I don't remember if someone suggested it or if I thought of it. It doesn't really matter. But, um, um, but yeah, so it's a clear there's a sense of the significance of this image, the significance of this sense. But I don't know whether we need to add that to the list necessarily um, because, again, it's implied in, in, in the node of meaningfulness. It's implied in the... Uh, node of infinite echoing and mirroring uh, that's why it's significant and and maybe implied in in the node of duty so I'm not sure um, you know we wouldn't want the list of elements to get too unwieldy 28 is already a lot um, on the other hand as I said I don't I don't particularly want these teachings to be sort of uh, engraved forever in stone and then um, uh, without the possibility of creative uh, discoveries by others um, at some point. Um, But if we talk about um, humility and if we talk about duty, 
than, uh, as I pointed out earlier, with humility. And, and also, I hope it's uh, you get a feel for it when, when we've been talking about duty over the years, that it includes love. So, again, there's this overlap or implication of um, between uh, um, the, the, the elements of the imaginal. So let's talk a little, just a little bit right now about the element of, of love. Um, love, loving and being loved, we said, was one of the elements of the imaginal. One of the things that's interesting here, and I don't know whether I've pointed it out, I don't think I have, that's why I'm saying it now, is um, before, I, I, one of the things that's important to realize is this, this love is not, um, is not meta, or rather it's not just meta. So uh, the love that imaginal figures have for us is, um, is not a universal love. It's particular to us. It may include meta, which is a universal love. Just uh, meta is a, a a love, a universal love for uh, sentient beings. Universal in the sense, of, in the sense of all all sentient beings are included, no no matter what. Whereas the love that imaginal figures for us have for us, it might include meta, um, but. Actually, it's not universal. It's it is rather it's it's a kind of love of our uniqueness. Um, it's their rejoicing in, if you like, their delighting in, their loving, their celebrating of, and gratitude for our our uniqueness and some particularity in us. And that's different than meta. Metra doesn't matter how this person is different from that person, or even this person is in some ways more developed or better morally or kinder or more beautiful or wiser or more intelligent or less. Or, it doesn't matter. But, <coughs> but a significant or the significant um, characteristic of the love that imaginal figures for us is different and it is, it is particular. It's not a universal it's not meta, it's more than meta. It may well include meta. And neither is it an unconditional love like meta is. So again, meta is um, to all beings equally. No one deserves more or less meta. Um, so it's universal in that sense. It's also unconditional. as kind of What I was explaining before really explains the unconditionality of meta as well. It doesn't matter. Um, it's not dependent on, it's not conditioned by this or that quality in the being. Um, or this or that behavior. So um, uh, a pathological serial killer is worthy of as much metta as a Buddha um, in the teachings of metta. But the love that imaginal figures have for us is not universal, and it's not an unconditional love either, like metta is. Um, again, rather, it's it's um, the imaginal figure's love for us is... Uh, to some extent, contingent on us being a certain way, or acting, or choosing, or or feeling, or intending, or sensing, uh, in some particular way, which is dear to, and somehow refracts those similar dispositions in the imaginal figure. You understand? We could say, or we could say. The um, the imaginal figure loves our potential, 
our kind of ideal being. This is this is significant because it's it's connected to duty, isn't it? They want something from us. They they have an ask, a demand, a duty, and the love that they have is wrapped up with that. Sometimes they just celebrate our being, our sensibility, and sometimes they want us to be a certain way in the world: act, choose, feel, intend, sense, etc. And that that way is somehow connected to their way, how they are. So this is important to realize when we when we talk about love um, in in the uh, of, of imaginal figures for us of being loved. And we pointed out, uh, and actually earlier, even in this talk, pointed out, and that love can look really quite different from whatever perhaps more narrow. Uh, um, models or uh, ideas of love we have. So it can look um, quite stern, quite fierce, uh, um, quite demanding or taxing or, or, you know, all kinds of things. Given all kinds of examples over the years, even the, the, the devouring what seems violent, etc. An image that eats me up and devours me or cuts me up into little... All this can... Cuts me up into little pieces. All this can be... If I don't get pulled into my immediate indoctrinated assumptions that that my mind has, um, I start to see oh there is a kind of love here, and it's 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 not the usual kind. Um, and I have to again, I'm training my sensibility, I'm opening my sensibility and receptivity and my discernment to the range of what love can mean. But the love is not meta; it's not universal; it's not unconditional. I mean, it might include that as a strata, but it's it's more than that. I uh, mentioned Nikolai Hartman briefly. I want to return to him if I get to do the talks on ethics. Um, uh, we'll return to him, and he talks about. Uh, <clears throat> just mention a, a little bit right now in this connection with with love, and he talks about what he calls personal love, which is different than um, he he really means. Uh, love of the um, really in our language he means love of the being because you sense the image you sense him, her, them as image and that um, imaginal level of, of, of the human being that you love he calls it the ideal uh, the personal ideal um, I hope to explain that language a bit more when we get back when we get to the talks on ethics, but um, so there's what he calls the empirical personality, which is just the empirical means just what you actually sense, what you see. You see this form, you see that action, you see them be grumpy, you see them snap at someone, you see you see them be lazy or, or whatever it is at, at times. Um, the empirical personality, he says, um, never strictly corresponds to its own ideal value to the image. So there's a sense, when we love really deeply, um, we have, if you like, the imaginal sense of the other. Now, he tends to think there's just one imaginal sense. Um, let's go with that for now, uh, a bit like some of Corbin's, uh interpretations of certain teachers. Um, but he calls that the ideal personality. Um, uh, 
so the empirical since the empirical personality has never strictly corresponds to its own ideal value to the image but uh, uh, but love in in his sense in this personal love looks exclusively to the latter to the image to the ideal um, the ideal is not some preconceived notion of how this person should be it's a sort of intuitive sense of the the angel that they're refracting, if we put it in our language, he's putting it in different language, different concept. He doesn't use he doesn't use the language of images or even the idea of images. Um, so it inheres in the essence of personal love then to pierce through the empirical person to his ideal value. And you see through um, the everyday sort of foibles and failings of this person. Um, uh, you also see the wonderful things that they do and, and their beauty, but but you pierce through the empirical to the ideal value, to the image, to the, their angelic nature and what they what's what they are refracting in their being. There, this is at least its tendency. He says, um, its commitment is to the ideal of personality, to that image. It lets that stand for the empirical individual. Accepting him, I'm going to just for now retain his uh, gender bias language. Um, sorry about that. It's a complicated, long passage. So um, it lets that stand for the empirical individual. It lets the uh, so it's gravitating more. It's orienting more towards what he's calling the ideal uh, of the person, uh, what we might call the image. Um, uh, it lets that stand for the empirical individual, accepting him as equivalent to his highest possibilities as raised to a power above his actual being. It loves in him what inheres in his essential tendency, the axiological idiosyncrasy of his ideal. So that fancy language just means his his particular unique uh, set of values and sensibilities um, uh, that... that uh, that reside in his image. We are like we are. We have these kind of values, these kind of sensibilities, these kind of directions, aspirations, propensities, the deep ones, because of the image that we are given, the, the image that we are refracting, the angel that we are um, uh, refracting. That we are the refraction of. Um, not as an ideal, but as a trend towards actuality, just as if it were already actualized in him. Um, for it, for this kind of love, the man as he is, in the trend of his, uh, of his, the preference of his ethos, of his being, is accepted as a guarantor of a higher, of a higher moral being. Um, Again, he's using the word moral in quite a wide sense, but uh, let's not go into that right now. Which, of course, he is not, but which which uh, only in him and nowhere else in the world finds something real that approximates to its own value. So only in us, only in you, is there uh, anything uh, that's approximating that angel. Unique. And that's all that we can, uh, uh, 
that's the closest we can come to that angel, if you like, through the human. It's the closest it comes. Um, personal love, this, 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 this meaning this, this fuller, deeper love that sees, that senses and loves what he calls the ideal person in the other, or the, what we might call the image. Um, personal love lives by faith in the highest that is within the loved one, which despite its inadequacy, love senses prophetically. Such love is ethical divination um, in the preeminent sense of the word, he says. Um, the love of the ideal of a particular, meaning the image of a particular individual. And he continues, the distinctive power of all love which enters deeply into one's personal life is that it brings to light the otherwise hidden and neglected essence of one's individuality. So, this is a long passage and I'm taking my time reading it, but I'm mentioning all this because not only is this relevant to human-human relationships where we allow them to become, uh, to be enriched and to open out to the imaginal dimension. I've said this before. I think real love, deep love of another human being includes um, the love or includes them being image to us and the love of that image so that we're loving the whole spectrum of their being, the whole uh, spectrum of the dimensionality of their being. And but so it apply, he's talking about it in love of human to human, which I want to include. But right now, talking about the love of images for us, because images love us in that sense, in the sense that he's talking about. And the distinctive power of all love which enters deeply into one's personal life is that it brings to light the otherwise hidden and neglected essence of one's individuality. It's as if these images, they, they look at us, they witness us, and they, they know us sometimes better than we know ourselves. And in their gaze and in their love, um, what, is, what is sometimes hidden and inaccessible within us is brought to light through their gaze, through their love, they know something that perhaps we're not in contact with. And it, it starts to activate and actualize that, uh, that uh, those aspects of our being, those, if you like, the inner core of our being, the dimensional, uh, uh, the imaginal dimensions of our being, the images that we are, that we are refracting, that we, are, uh, that we can potentially refract, that we can choose to... Um, engage with more fully, it brings to light and to life, I would say, the otherwise hidden and neglected essence of one's individuality. He continues, that this revelation can be achieved only in a life of another order than that of the empirical is because of the gulf between him, between the empirical man and the ideal of himself and the image. So there's this separation. The image, that's why I use the word refraction, it can never be, as I said before, a, a complete 100% faithful replica of the angel. He calls a gulf between the empirical man, the actual manifestation, and the ideal, the image. Um, and then he continues, the loved one feels the power that upholds him. So think, think about this. You, you, I hope some of you will have tasted this already with images. Something about the way they love us. Of course, you can taste, you can feel it and taste it when you're 
related to a certain um, with a certain love by another human being when again when they're opening to and allowing the angelic the imaginal dimension of your being they're allowing themselves to witness that to open to it to sense it to relate to it to love it the loved one feels the power that upholds him I hope you've felt this I hope you uh, have tasted this with images also with other human beings and practitioners he feels that the loving glance penetrates his empirical being and points beyond it Thus he is aware that for the one who loves him, he has become transparent. It exalts him above himself. This exalts him above himself. He feel, and he feels also that which shames him for not being in actuality as the other sees him. But instead of feeling that he is misunderstood, he has rather a sense that he is known to, pre, to a preeminent degree. So even when there's a sense of um, the image and the ideal of the image and we feel we're not living up to it, um, and the image knows that, (laughs) um, we still feel uh, deeply understood, deeply known. And at the same time, he's forced to be what the other sees him to be. So there's something again in the alchemy of images of opening ourselves to the gaze of an image, to the the sense and the conception of the imaginal in the way that we're talking about, that will galvanize all this. It changes our life, it directs us, it gives us power and also um, gives us courage and inclination to follow a certain direction or calling or action or manifestation in our life. Something uh, very beautiful here. I, I want to talk about, it. yeah, both, both on both in both uh, uh, domains. The domain of uh, uh, regarding a, a, an image or a sensing the soul, uh, something we're sensing the soul in the way that it loves us. In this way that he's talking about, um, and or the, the human human relationships, actual human relationships, when they're allowed to open, when we don't. Um, disallow that kind of opening to those imaginal dimensions. Now, of course, some of you from down background will get pretty nervous at this kind of well, this kind of language when he talks about one kind of ideal of a person. Um, uh, so we're using that his language, as I said, the ideal of a personality is roughly akin to our language of the image of of. Um, the self-image or the image that the other is seeing in us or we see in another or the angel out ahead we can just for now just lump them together Um, it's still empty Um, so if that if that kind of language sounds like it's uh, reifying or essentializing um, a kind of ultimately true core to the self um, we can still say it's empty Okay, how is it empty? Uh, well, it doesn't exist in time like anything, it's a fabrication um, it's, you know, the different emptiness teachings, it's composed of parts and holes and it's empty because of that um, etc um, it's also, you know, this I'll come back to this I hope in the talk on ethics but this, this language of 
ideals is uh, is an old language people hardly use it anymore but I want to revisit it um, so it's never discerned defi- definitively uh, or clearly so we have uh, so this intuitive sense of the angel that the person is refracting or an angel that they're refracting uh, we have an intuitive sense of them as image but it's never kind of tied down definitively and it's never completely crystal clear as the as the empirical version is and there's something um, perhaps similar there to a kind of existence it's a bit like the if you know from quantum physics the wave function that hasn't collapsed it's a sort of potential um, there the probability wave function with the potential of this whatever it is particle or electron um, is is given a certain range and definition but it's still uh, um, it's not it's not manifest yet so manifest in in, in, in this um, translation if we translate it to our terms the the angel manifests through our action through our speech through our choices through our sensibilities through our thoughts through our heart. But in itself, it's kind of not totally knowable. Okay, last thing. Um, And it's connected. um, And also I want to continue paraphrasing Hartman. It's from a book called, um, well, he's got this huge book called Ethics, which I'll come back to, but it's from there. Um, and he talks about this kind of love uh, is not only a, a disposition or an emotion um, or a, a sort of striving, but it's also a kind of knowing. It's a kind of cognition, he says. Um, so, um, in this sense, a cognitive element, a knowing element, is always contained in that kind of love. Um, anyone who means by knowledge only a thinking, reflective, rational consciousness of an object must naturally find a contradiction here. Um, But that is an untenable idea of knowledge, which not even science, much less life, uh, would admit to be adequate. Um, So there's a, a... a kind of knowledge based on feeling, an intuitive knowledge. So in other words, when we love this way, implicit in that is we know something about the person. Or the image knows us deeply. In a certain sense, he writes, the popular saying is right, love is blind, insofar as it does not see what is before its eyes. More correctly stated, it sees what is not in front of its eyes, what is not really at hand, it sees through. This is the transparency. Its glances of the nature of divination. To the ideal essence behind the actual man, to it, sorry, to it, the ideal essence behind the actual man is the man proper. So again, we're, we're, we're playing like with this, what's real here? Is the image more real than the, than the uh, flesh and blood human manifestation? Who is the real being here? Or play with this conception of ontology, play in this range of the imaginal middle way. To it, to this kind of love, the ideal essence, he writes, behind, behind the actual man, behind the actual person, is the person proper. 
As regards personality, he continues, as regards personality, he who loves is the only one who sees, while he who is without love is blind. He starts with this phrase, love is blind, but actually he turns it round. If you don't love deeply in this way, if you don't include the, the imaginal dimension, if we put it in our language, you're actually not seeing properly. You're blinded, blinded by uh, a certain level of uh, what's obviously palpable and sensible and agreed upon. Turns that around. Um, So this gaze and this kind of love discovers the ideal in the empirical. It discovers the image in in the human manifestation, in the human manifestation. Um, and that love, uh, within the limits of its power, creates it in the loved one. So there's a kind of intuitive understanding, and through the love and through the relationship, it actually, as I said, it 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 fertilizes that and gives uh, allows that seed to germinate, allows it to to actualize, to come to being. So that kind of constructive work of love uh, follows after its discernment. But there's a penetrating knowledge of this kind of intuitive love. So again, if we come back to epistemology and all that, um, to say a way of knowing, which he's talking about, a way of knowing is a step further epistemologically than, say, a way of looking. Because you're actually saying this is a kind of knowledge. There's a truth to it. So he's he's uh, very much in that camp. We uh, we want to open up that territory too, because there's such a tendency to dismiss these kinds of things in our culture. Then, how far are we able to unite the life of the ideal with a sober view of the actual? So it's not uh, that we don't see the actual. It's not that the image doesn't see the actual in us. It's not that we don't see the actual in another person, their humanity, their faults, their foibles, their failings, their fallings, etc. So how much can we unite the actual life with the actual man? And that combination, he says, need not be a compromise. The whole art of love, he says, consists in retaining this high point of vision as a perspective and remaining under its spells. Now he's talking about human relationships. But it might also transfer, uh, we can translate it also to the realm of imaginal relationships, that we have to um, uh, retain this openness to the image that, that loves us in that way. That we have to let the image, uh, as it naturally will, retain uh, that, that high vision that it has of us, that perspective. And, and uh, we are under the spell of that vision. So all that is a uh, complicated passage. I hope you get the gist. All that is um, <clears throat> implicit uh, as part of the possibilities of what we can sense in the love that images have for us. And uh, the beauty of that, that the way the soul is touched by that and opened 
like a flower opening and guided and inspired and anchored. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.